Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 21 the Novgorod Republic, and Alexander Nevsky. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so let's see where we are. In the last episode, we looked at what the Mongols did after they had conquered the Rus in the year 1240, which encompassed a triple-pronged advance into Eastern Europe and their occupation and administration of the Rusiskaya Zemla, or the Rus lands. And then we covered the short reigns of Yaroslav II, Sviatoslav III, Mikhail and Andrei II in Vladimir, and ended up in the summer of 1252 with Alexander in situ as the Grand Prince. First off this week I'll be doing a bit of tidying up, which I find is always a satisfactory thing to do, especially when you get that lovely feeling after it's all done, even though you know you're going to have to do it all over again fairly shortly. And I'll be looking at what has been going on with the Mongols, and taking a bit more of an in-depth look at the Princeton-Republic of Novgorod. And then after a short bask in the glow of tidiness, we'll spend the rest of the episode finally looking at the life and times of the aforementioned Alexander. Okay, there's no admin or messages this week. I'll catch up on those next time. So let's just crack on and do some history of Russia. Let's rewind and go back 10 years. It's 1242 and Batu, Guyuk and Kadan have suddenly left their campaigning in Eastern Europe and started to make their way back east to Mongolia, either because the military losses were starting to stack up or because news of the great Khan, Ogadai's death, in December 1241 had reached them, and they needed to go back home to choose a new leader. Now, I posited, isn't that a lovely word? I don't think we use that often enough, uh, that it was due to the former reason, because there was evidence to suggest that they had started their journey back 
before the news of Ogadai's death had reached them. I've been doing some thinking, which with me is a pretty dangerous thing, and now I'm not so sure, as I can't see how a handful of minor defeats on their own were reason enough for the Khans to suddenly throw the towel in and head back home. It just doesn't seem to have been a very Mongol thing to have done. And the plot thickens because, you see, Batu and Guyuk just didn't get along, and neither of them wanted to be just involved in the process of choosing the next great Khan, they both would have had their sets on uh, their sights set on being the next great Khan. And I think that this adds some weight to the argument that it was Ogaday's death that was the main reason for everyone trying to get back home. Anyway, this isn't a history of the Mongols, I've said that before, Although over the past few weeks, I admit, I have taken something of a starring role, but justifiably, I think. So I'm going to stop paying too much attention to why certain things transpired and just tell you what happened. So Batu, perhaps sensing that it was more than likely that Guyuk was going to get the top job. I mean, after all, both were Genghis's grandsons, but Guyuk was Ogade's son refused to travel any further than Sarai, his HQ on the Volga, where he took stock and summoned various Rus leaders, including Yaroslav of Vladimir and Daniel of Halic, to obtain official Mongol recognition of their titles and to let them know who really was in charge. Guyuk continued onwards to Karakorum and eventually at a great Kurultai in 1246, which incidentally Batu didn't attend, Guyuk was announced as the next great Khan. And the enmity between the two continued on and off over the next few years. Both men were wary but also respectful of one another. No really decisive moves were made by either one of them. However, Eventually, by 1248, Guyuk felt that his position was strong enough for him to officially summon Batu to appear before him, and so he officially summoned Batu to appear before him. Now, Batu realised that he couldn't just ignore the summons, but he also recognised the seriousness of the situation, and so he delayed his departure as long as he could before starting off eastwards, very, very slowly hoping against hope that something, anything, would happen. Guyuk Khan, fed up with waiting, finally snapped, and he set off to intercept Batu, but during his journey west, he fell ill, and then his condition worsened, and eventually he died, and just like that, Batu was off the hook. But he wasn't just off the hook. Guyuk's untimely death meant that he was now one of the senior players in the Mongol hierarchy, perhaps the senior player, because he was then, and I'm doing air quotes now, invited by the Regency Council to preside over a Kultai, which Kelsipriz elected him as the next great Khan. But for some reason, he refused, perhaps realising that after all, he was better off operating behind the scenes just running the Golden Horde from Sarai. Eventually in 1251, Munke Khan, who was the son of Genghis's youngest son, Tolui, who, if you remember, had also died due to the effects of alcohol, 
was chosen to head up the empire, but importantly, he made sure that he obtained Batu's support before he formally accepted the role. And by this time, Batu's campaigning days were effectively over. And we're told that he was often afflicted by gout, again, likely to have been caused by the love of a drink or two. And in the year 1255, he died. So that brings us up to date uh, with all things Mongolian. Now let's see what was going on in Novgorod, or more specifically, Veliki Novgorod, because remember, there are now two Novgorods. We've got Nizhny out in the east and Veliki, which means upper or great, uh, up in the north. So back in episode 15, when Kievan Rus was in its death throes during the mid-1100s and Vladimir was establishing itself as the preeminent city and province, I did a kind of introduction to Novgorod which covered how it had always been a little bit different to the rest of the Rus provinces. If you remember, it was the original HQ or capital of the first Varangians as they forged their trading networks down the Dnieper and Volga rivers. And it maintained this importance even when Kiev had been established as the de facto Rus capital. But Kiev's sway or influence over Novgorod was never that strong, mainly because of the distance between the two and Novgorod's position, located as it was far to the northwest on the borders with Finland and the Baltic lands. And as early as 1014, Novgorod was effectively self-governing and built up a highly efficient, financially sound, quasi-democratic series of institutions. And by 1136, when Kievan Rus was starting to implode, a type of early republic was set up in the state of Novgorod. Yes, there was still a prince, mainly for military and defensive purposes, but also for tradition and custom. But there were also elections, and if the prince didn't rule in accord with the elected officials, he'd soon find himself in hot water. So let's take it from there and explore this uniquely fascinating place a little further. And first of all, how did this state or quasi-republic refer to itself? Well, in a number of different ways. In its early period, simply as Novgorodskaya Rus or Novgorodskaya Zemla, which is effectively the Novgorodian Rus or lands. And by the time of the Republic, this had become Novgorodskaya Respublika. However, as the city in particular had a high regard for itself and thought it was just a little bit special, its citizens referred to their city-state as, and get this, His Majesty Lord Novgorod the Great which in Slavic or early Proto-Russian was Gosudar Gospodin Veliki Novgorod. Or more casually, the citizens just said Lord Novgorod the Great, or Gospodin Veliki Novgorod. Another couple of things that made the place a bit special and different were related to trade. Firstly, Veliki Novgorod was the easternmost outpost of something called the Hanseatic League. Now, this trading confederation was a sort of early forerunner of the European Union, if you like, and it controlled trade throughout the North and Baltic Seas, where it had a virtual monopoly. Centred in modern-day northern Germany, 
the league extended westwards as far as the eastern areas of England, northwards into Denmark and Sweden, and eastwards into Poland, Lithuania, and of course the Bruce lands. And it was at its peak between the 13th and 15th centuries. This collective economic influence made the League a powerful force, which was capable of imposing blockades and even waging war against other kingdoms and principalities. So you didn't mess with the League. And then secondly, Novgorod was at the heart of the lucrative fur trade. It's difficult to imagine in today's world how important this trade actually was, and continued to be right up to the 19th and 20th centuries, prior to the advent of mass-produced modern synthetic textiles and materials, and of course changes in fashion and ethics. But furs were not just a fashion item, they were an essential item for all but the poorest of people in the northern European lands. And throughout Novgorod's eastern and northern hinterland, there existed a vast network of trappers, middlemen and merchants, capturing the animals, stripping the fur, treating it, manufacturing it, and moving it west, first to the city and then onwards to the rest of Europe and the Rus lands. And it wasn't just fur and animal skins. Trade existed in other items such as beeswax, honey, fish, lard, flax and hops, which all came into the city from the countryside and again were traded on to the rest of the continent. But the main difference, and we've sort of touched on this, between Novgorod and the rest of the Ruslands, and indeed the rest of Eastern Europe during the early medieval period, and in fact throughout most of Europe, was its form of government. Now the precise constitution of the medieval Novgorodian Republic is uncertain, although traditional histories have created an image of a highly institutionalised network of vetches, which were public assemblies, and a government of civil officials, the judiciary, the boyars, which were the aristocratic, aristocratic families, and the Archbishop of Novgorod and the prince. And of course we mustn't forget that Novgorod had its own chronicle, and it's from there that we get a further glimpse as to how this all worked. It describes that the people had the power to elect city officials, and that they even had the power to elect and get rid of the prince. The Chronicle's writer then goes on to describe a series of town meetings or vetches, where these decisions would have been made, and which included people from all social classes, ranging from the posadniki, which were the civil officials, to the chernia liudi, which literally means black folks or the lowest free class. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The at least nominal executives were the princes of Novgorod. But unlike the other princedoms in the Ruslands, there was no Novgorodian ruling family. Instead, a prince would either be assigned by Kiev and after Kiev's demise by Vladimir, or invited in from one of the neighbouring states by the council. The prince and or the archbishop, depending on whether or not the prince was in place at the time, set the laws and regulations, determined military strategy, headed up embassies and oversaw court cases. However, the executive had to work with the council and importantly the boyars to reach consensus, and almost never acted alone. Another important executive was the chief posadnik, who chaired the most important veche, co-chaired court sessions together with the prince and archbishop, oversaw tax collection, and managed the current affairs of the city. And most of the prince's major decisions had to be approved by the posadnik, who was almost inevitably a boyar, and this resulted in a degree of tension between the two, and that's an understatement. The precise makeup of the main veche is also uncertain, although it appears to have contained members of the urban population, as well as the members of the free rural population. And whether it was a truly democratic institution or one controlled by the boyars is still debated to this day. And just for the record, I'm going with the boyar controlled option. There's no doubt, however, that the tradespeople and craftsmen participated in the minor political affairs of the city. And the Chronicle tells us that they were organised into five consi or ends, representing the different boroughs or wards of the city, with each end being further organised into its various streets. And these streets often bore names indicating that certain trades were concentrated in that part of the city. For example, there was a carpenter's end and a potter's end. So by the time we reached the 1230s, things in the Republic of Novgorod were bumbling along nicely, or more than nicely in fact. And then of course, enter stage right, Batu, Subutai and the rest of the gang. But as we know, the Novgorod Republic managed to escape the horrors of the Mongol invasion because it was the only Rus principality to preemptively and peacefully submit to the Mongols. And there's even talk of a bribe being paid to Subutai to seal this particular deal. And yes, they had to become a Mongol vassal state and had to pay tribute to the Khan of the Golden Horde. But the city and the people were spared the bloodshed and slaughter that had affected the other Rus princedoms, and most importantly, trade was not impacted. Okay, we'll leave the Novgorodian Republic there, because it's now time to get back to Vladimir and see how Alexander is getting on. But before we do that, we need to take a look at his life and times, because it's that that really forms the man. Because prior to him becoming the Grand Prince, um, obviously you know, his brother Andre had been chucked out and had run off to Sweden. So Alexander, who was born in May 1220, was the second son 
of Yaroslav II of Vladimir, and as the second son, there were no plans for him to inherit his father's position. Luckily then, in 1236, Novgorod came calling, and Alexander found himself in place as the Grand Prince at just 17 years old. Unluckily, this was right at the time that Swedish, German, Polish and Livonian forces, and a side note here, the Livonian order was an independent offshoot of the Teutonic Knights, which operated in the Baltic lands. And they were starting to flex their muscles and had started to chip away at the Western Rus borders. And so Novgorod's invitation to Alexander to come in and take charge was out of necessity rather than politeness or custom. Again, according to the Novgorod Chronicle, which was written in the 14th century, so more than a century after the events uh, I'm about to recount had taken place, which, if you put that into perspective, that's like writing down a history of the First World War now, based on collective hearsay. In the year 1240, a large Swedish army landed at the confluence of the rivers Isora and Nieva. Alexander quickly assembled his own small army and then rode out to where the Swedes were encamped and immediately attacked and defeated this much larger force. Recorded in history as the Battle of the Nieva, this victory saved Novgorod from an almost certain full-scale Western invasion and gave the 19-year-old Alexander the sobriquet Nievsky, which simply means of the Nieva. But crucially, and in the context of the Mongol invasion, Alexander's reputation was significantly enhanced, as at last there was something positive, perhaps even a turning point, to celebrate. But enhanced reputations can cause jealousy, and before long Alexander's relationship with the boyars in Novgorod worsened with the result that he was asked to pack his bags and leave. But soon afterwards, crusading Catholic Germans and Estonians, again under the Livonian order, invaded Peskov, which at the time was governed by Novgorod. And so the city authorities swallowed their pride and again sent for Alexander. So in the spring of 1242, he returned from exile, gathered an army and won another famous victory at the so-called Battle of the Ice. At this battle, which took place on the frozen surface of Lake Pipus on the 5th of April, so nice spring weather then, Alexander and his men had faced a legendary Livonian heavy cavalry led by Hermann, the Bishop of Dorpat. And this victory, coming as it did on the heels of the Battle of the Nieva, marked one of the most significant events in the history of the Rus, as the lightly armed foot soldiers of Novgorod had surrounded and defeated an army of knights mounted on horseback and clad in thick armour. It really was a victory against all of the odds, and Alexander's already growing reputation went up another notch. So after these Swedish and Livonian incursions, Alexander Nievsky realised that over the coming years he would need to strengthen his northwest border region, as if he did nothing further threats were bound to arise from that direction. 
So a peace treaty was signed between the Rus and the Norwegians, and then in 1251, he led an army into Finland and defeated the Swedes, who were again causing problems with access to the Baltic, which in turn had been disrupting trade. So by now, Alexander was proving to be a skilled and far-sighted politician, and he realised that whilst on the surface, the Golden Horde looked to be the bigger threat to Rus' stability, the reality was that the danger from the West was by far the bigger problem. In his eyes, Rus' identity was completely bound up with the Orthodox Church, and he saw the Catholic-led Western incursions as the bigger issue, or as a bigger issue than paying tribute to the Khans, who, as we know, left church matters to the Rus. And because of this, many historians see this period and Alexander's policy as the beginning of Russia's embrace of the East and its values and traditions, rather than its orientation towards the West. And note there my first use of the word Russia, rather than Rus. Maybe it's a bit premature. Let's see. But you could look at Alexander's point of view another way. Because there's, there's also the view that he intentionally kept the Rus principalities and city-states as vassals to the Mongols in order to preserve his own status, and that he ensured good personal relationships kept with the Khans so that he had backup in case someone challenged his authority. Whichever way you look at it, after he became the Grand Prince of Vladimir in 1252, Alexander was always a staunch supporter of the Mongols. He made many trips east to both Sarai and Karakorum and ensured that the yearly tribute was always paid on time. And if it wasn't, as happened in Novgorod in 1259, he took quick, decisive action to sort things out. But all things come to an end, and in 1263, returning from one of his frequent visits to the Horde, Alexander died in the town of Gorodets on the Volga, aged just 44 years old. He left four sons from two marriages and was buried in the Nativity Monastery in Vladimir. But his reputation as a Rus or Russian hero, as that word again, lived on and prospered. Alexander was canonised as a saint of the Russian Orthodox Church by Metropolitan Macarius in 1547. And in 1724, Peter the Great ordered the transfer of his body and associated relics to a monastery in St. Petersburg. And then in 1922, during the communist era, his shrine was moved to the Hermitage Museum, where it remains to this day. In 1938, the famous Soviet director, Sergei Eisenstein, made one of his most acclaimed films, simply called Alexander Nevsky. Uh, the film depicts and celebrates Alexander's famous victories. And in 2008, he, uh, Alexander that is, and not Sergei, was declared as the key hero of Russia's history. And in the same year, he was named the greatest Russian by a television poll. Okay, after all that glory and acclaim, that's where we'll end things for this week. Next time... I'll be getting my skates on and whizzing through the fragmentation and decline of Vladimirian rule and the rise of a little-known provincial backwater, or Moscow as it's called today. So, until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all again soon.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.